Yo, welcome back. So Sam Kriegman is a computer scientist turned postdoc researcher at the Weiss Lab for biologically inspired engineering with Michael Levin. Michael Levin is the bioelectricity researcher who regenerated limbs on a frog. Sam has focused on evolutionary design for creating these xenobots, which are created from frog embryos and sculpted into living organisms. They are absolutely incredible, and I recommend looking up a picture of them if you haven't seen them. If you're on YouTube, then it's on the thumbnail. Uh, anyways, we discuss the xenobots, the future of biological evolutionary design, and more. So let's get into the episode. Now is the time to take risk. What's up, Sam? Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. We were riffing beforehand, and that's a beautiful background that you got there. Thank you. So your work is like the combination of robotics and biology. And, you know, this is something similar to what I really enjoy about cool research is that it's kind of the combination of art and science. And something that you mentioned was you were inspired by the MIT Media Lab work on, on, on design of, of like movement. Could you kind of expand on that and like how you got into evolutionary design? Yeah, definitely. So all of my work builds on top of a lot of previous work, like all science. Mm -hmm. Mine in particular builds off of work in the early 90s by Carl Sims and Jeff Ventrella, who were at the MIT Media. And they were interested in computer animation. How do you make really lifelike looking creatures that just were virtual. That is applications in movies or video games or the arts. And it turns out the easiest way to do that is not to harm appearance by, by Sam's dog. got his, his dog back there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's whining a little bit. I don't know if you can hear that. But it turns out the best way to animate something like a dog or uh, some other strange animated creature is not to hard code in all of the movements, but to code up the physics in a computer. So it knows like force equals mass times acceleration, all the high school simple physics that you learn. And then you just create a body. You say how much it weighs, what's its mass and how it's moving, what's its, the forces that are applied to all the parts of the body. And then Newton's law will tell you, you know, how it's moving. And it looks much more lifelike than if you tried to hard code or, or hand design every single frame. So, mm -hmm. so it's useful in, in some aspects of animation. And I was inspired by that because when I saw it, I thought two things. One, I thought this is, those are robots. You know, yeah. like we should be designing robots like that. And I also thought that this is how AI should be done. I, I think like how did, mm -hmm. how did natural intelligence come about? It, it evolved in physical mm -hmm. bodies that are interacting with their world and, and they're, the way that they understand things are, are deeply rooted in those interactions with the world. So I think that maybe one path we at least know works to create intelligence is to do something like this with virtual creatures that start out like blobs and they're evolving to be more complex. And what comes out at the end could be a useful robot, could be useful art, could be useful artificial intelligence or something else. Yeah. And one of the interesting things that you said in a lecture that like makes sense, but I hadn't really thought about was that biology has focused on an extremely small subset of, of possibilities for, for biological creatures. And that using AI, you can significantly expand the subset. And like, you know, we're kind of always told that biology has, you know, tested all the iterations, but using this AI, you can, you can definitely do new possibilities such as the xenobots. Oh yeah, evolution has explored a super, super small space of the possible bodies and intelligences that could exist. And those things are interesting just for science. 
like what's mm -hmm. possible, how does evolution really work? It's also interesting for engineering and robotics because there's probably designs that could help do jobs we don't want to do or just support human lives. And, and, and I think that, yeah, it's worth, ex it's definitely worth exploring these other, other possible worlds and evolutionary trajectories. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, like the Xenobots is, is probably the most well-known of your work. So I guess we'll talk about that. How did you like start designing that? And what was the design process of like the software and, and your, your considerations while designing it? It definitely builds off of that early MIT Media Lab work. So they were interested in automatically designing animated characters. And then that was in 1990, early 1990s. It was published in 1994, but I think they were working on it since like 1990. Then in 2000, Hod Lipson published basically the idea that you could take Carl Sims and Jeff Ventrilla's creatures that were virtual and you could build them in the real world out of robot parts. In fact, it was one of the earliest applications of 3D printing. So mm -hmm. they 3D printed this plastic and the like ball and hinge joints. The ball was printed inside of the hinge. It was, it was very, very impressive manufacturing and engineering and scientific work. And so they evolved these virtual creatures, which we can talk about how that happens. They evolved them in the simulator and then they automatically printed them in the real world and then snapped in some motors by hand, hooked them up to a computer by a long wire, powered them and, and off they went. And so then 20 years later in 2020, we took it a step further mm -hmm. and building on both the virtual creatures and the, the automatically designed robots, we did automatically designed new forms of life. So instead of snapping in motors and uh, 3D printing plastic, we built these systems out of living cells. And in our case, that was frog skin cells and frog heart cells. Mm -hmm. So you can treat the frog skin cells and heart cells like Legos and build a structure out of them, only the heart cells pulse. So you can ask not just how to make an interesting structure, but how to make it move in a certain way. Where do you put the little heart cell motors? Where do you put the skin cells? And the result is somewhat like a wind-up toy. Depending on where you put the motors, it's going to move in a certain way or not at all. And yeah, the advance that we made is just showing that, first of all, you can make completely biological robots or wind-up toys, whatever you want to call them, and that you can have a computer automatically design them like this earlier work in robotics and, and animation. So when you were evolving the algorithm, like it, it wasn't uh, just like you have a set structure, evolve, iterate, and then check movement. You also added a few other considerations into the algorithm. Like what were the other considerations in the algorithm as you were designing these? Yeah, so there were considerations that this system needed to actually be buildable in the real world. And when you are dealing with just computer animations, you don't have to worry about those considerations because mm -hmm. they're staying in the computer. If they behave a little bit crazy, okay, maybe it's funny. It doesn't really matter because you don't have to instantiate them in reality. Once you start dealing with robots, then you have to place constraints on the system. It can't just randomly jump up a thousand feet in the air because yeah, one of them motors. was galloping. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So you have to constrain things to match the kinds of hardware that you have. So there's tricks to do that with robotics parts. And then we thought, well, how are we going to do this with 
the heart cells, we have no idea how they're going to behave when they don't form a heart. Mm-hmm. Now, we know what they're going to do if they're in an adult frog and in the shape of an adult frog's heart. They're going to all synchronize and beat and pump blood. But what are they going to do when you, they're interlaced with skin cells in a little like weird shape they've never been in for a completely different purpose? We weren't really sure. We asked a lot of heart experts whether or not they thought that the heart cells would synchronize their beating, how this would happen, how they would interact with the, the environment. And we encoded the best guess that we had, but we also just said the most conservative thing to do is just assume that we have no idea what's going to happen. The heart cells are just going to beat randomly. Can you design something that regardless of how the motors are pushing, it always does the right thing. It always moves in a straight line. I guess the analogy that that we came up with was, imagine you're trying to design a, a boat with a bunch of rowers in it. Basilia. Yeah, well, yeah, or heart muscle, whatever the motors are that you're using. We, we talk about Basilia as well in a second. But imagine you're trying to design uh, a boat where there's a bunch of humans in it and they're rowing, right? And if they're all rowing at the same time, you know how to design a boat. It's a long straight thing that we all see rowboats before. But what if all the rowers are rowing in, in like random directions at random <laughs> frequencies and like not paying attention? The boat's probably not gonna move or it's just gonna shake back and forth. Mm-hmm. But is there a design of like the hull of the boat and the shape of it that will channel all this random action into like a coherent thing that you want? Like go straight is the simplest example. And, mm-hmm. and that was basically the design problem. And for a human engineer, I mean, I don't know what the answer to that question is. We can guess and maybe we can guess right. But it's nice to pose this question to the artificial intelligence, which is basically doing a process of evolution in the computer of trial and error trying out a bunch of designs. Most of them don't work very well. The, the boat just shakes back and forth, but some will do slightly better than others. They'll move forward like an inch. And so by creating mutations of that or modified copies and of the good designs that move a tiny bit and overwriting the really bad designs with those good ones. Over a long period of time, evaluating millions of designs, the computer will eventually spit out a design that's pretty good. It evolved under this competition of different boat designs mm-hmm. or in our case, designs of, of little robots, living robots. And then it turned out that when you actually had them in the Petri dish, they started like collecting, they started pushing things together. <laughs> it wasn't really random. It was actually kind of, have you looked, have you figured out the mechanism of that yet or, or why they've been yeah, doing that? So- so yeah, we don't know, we still don't know how much is random and how much is coordinated, but we do see at some levels when you look at it, it definitely looks like there are aspects of their behavior that are, are somewhat predictable. Actually, that's the wrong word for it. Cause initially that kind of behavior was very surprising. Mm-hmm. So we didn't, we didn't code in this ability to herd things in their environment. We just, pro- we designed these systems to move And a lot of them move in kind of curved trajectories or spin in place. And when you put a bunch of those randomly moving bots in the same dish and among them, you place even smaller pellets, they will tend to pile those pellets together just based off of their movement Mm -hmm. alone. So you can imagine like you have a hundred Roombas and you like take off the sensors and you just say, you know, move around randomly. It turns out that 
they will still do some cleaning. They'll end up just by the random movement, make piles Yeah. to some, to some extent. Uh, that's what we think is going on. It's also possible though, this is the great thing about building systems with biology is that these systems are made out of cells and cells themselves are really complex machines that are sensing, talking to their neighbors and acting in complex ways. So it is possible that they are bumping into each other, feeling that they just bumped into something, changing slightly the way that they're moving. Hmm. Um, we don't know yet, but th that to me would signify somewhat more intelligent behavior than just the wind-up toy or the Roomba, like blind Roomba just moving you know, in yeah. a ballistic pattern. So we don't know what it is, but from, from our perspective, from an engineering perspective, it doesn't matter. You know, you can still design systems that are better at making piles or worse, or that don't pile, depending on their shape or how, how they move as individuals. From a scientific perspective though, it's something we're definitely interested in. It's like, what is the base intelligence of the system that's just made out of skin and heart cells? Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of your, you know, I was listening to another lecture and you were like, anytime an organism is moving is kind of when it requires a brain. And that's what intelligence is designed for movement. And like sea slugs, I think you were saying like when they go to a second part of their life, they get rid of their brain because they're just stagnant. And, and but then you also published some research on like slime mold that was sensing its environment, just mechanic. That's not really a question, but I, I just thought that was that was an interesting theory. Yeah. So my colleagues at Mike Levin's lab published that slime mold work. I, I wasn't involved with it, but it's definitely related. And yeah, the, I think the sea squirt is this famous example mm. that supports this hypothesis that brains are for moving fast. So plants still move, but they, you know, they grow very slowly or they follow sunlight. If you do a time-lapse, you can see them moving, but if you need to move fast, rapidly predict things, then a brain is good for that. But a lot of the research that we're doing, slime molds, the xenobots, they show that there's a lot of intelligence that exists before brains ever came onto the scene. Mm -hmm. There's intelligence in body cells, and there's a lot of things that you can do. Brains just speed up those things, which is kind of the opposite view of most, most artificial intelligence and cognitive science. The way that we think about adaptive and intelligent behavior starts with brains. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, well, the body is just constraining what the brain can do. But I think that the body enables doesn't, doesn't con just constrain and enables mm -hmm. intelligent behavior. So are you looking at like adding neuron cells to these xenobots to kind of uh, give them a little bit more intelligence or are you like on controlling them? You've, you've discussed like optogenetics so that they sense light and then react to that. Are you <sighs> looking at other ways of controlling these? Yeah, you definitely can add neuron cells. So there are things called organoids that people have made that are very similar to the xenobots. The difference is that the difference is that the xenobots move. So that it goes along with what we were just talking about. Organoids are normally like a brain in a dish. It doesn't move, but it, you can analyze some aspects of how neurons signal to each other or a liver in a dish and you can test out medicine on it. And they even have whole chips of all these organ systems connected to each other that might be a really good way in the future of testing uh, medicine that might be more applicable than, than, than mice and other things that are being used right now and more ethical. So it's really exciting space. The difference is that the xenobots move. So the question is what will help the movement 
And yeah, maybe like something like neurons can, can help them move in more intelligent ways or in different ways, according to different stimuli. It'll be interesting to see if we can program that. I will just mention that all cells, not just neurons, communicate to each other electrically and mm -hmm. chemically and mechanically. And there's all kinds of really amazing things that you can do without brains. And I think that that is the main focus of, of our work now. Although we wouldn't exclude putting in more, more kinds of cells, though it does raise ethical, different ethical questions yeah. for humans. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I would prefer to stick with the skin <laughs> instead <laughs> of making a little brain. It gets a little bit tricky, I think, mm -hmm. ethically. And so like these are on the scale of tardigrades, like they're very small. What, so, so you mentioned you open source the, the code and the, you can just buy frog embryos. Like what happens if I just kind of combined it into a baseball size Xenobot? Would that, uh, <laughs> this is kind of like an out there question, but I'm, I'm starting to think about like the applications of this. One of them's like scaling it up. Another one is maybe like you could put enzymes, uh, like the, the common one is enzymes maybe for microplastic reduction. But, but this question is like scaling it up would you need bones or, or a vascular structure or how would you scale this up? Basically xenobots right now are the size of a grain of sand. You can see them with your, the naked eye, but they're very small. And as they start to get bigger than a millimeter, they're, they're like a half millimeter right now. As they start to get bigger than a millimeter, the cells on the inside don't receive oxygen and other key metabolites and things that they need uh, to stay alive. So they will die. That's my understanding of it as a non-biologist. So you need something like a vascular system or to create big structures that are always keeping their cells close to the surface. So you, maybe you make like a fractal or something that has lots of holes in it. I think there are ways around that problem. But then you'd have to ask yourself, is it worth making a baseball sized skin yeah, like fractal you, get because out you, you would that would take a lot of frog eggs to make i mean you could do it frogs lay a lot of eggs um there's a lot of skin to be done yeah but to be used but yeah it's an interesting question it's also interesting that you brought up bones and other kinds of building blocks it will be interesting to see when bones are necessary just like it will be interesting to see when neurons are, are necessary as well it always so, is going to depend on for what What's the behavior? Mm -hmm. So, so what you're more focused now on is instead of scaling it up, more finding applications for the current size. So, you've mentioned a lot about microplastics or carbon capture. How could how could that work? So, I think the focus now is definitely on science, without being able to predict what the eventual useful applications are going to be. Because right now we have to recognize that it's a very, very simple system and it's not useful right now. And it's all just happening inside of a little Petri dish in, in one lab and the manufacturer is very slow and manual and they're very simple systems. They're just skin and, and heart muscle for now. But I do think that this kind of work makes us realize that there are useful applications or interesting behaviors that you can get from these blobs of skin. And one of them could be something like collecting small particles and just aggregating them. And we, we see that in, in our work, we see that the randomly moving 
Xenobots are the ones designed to move in certain patterns. When they're put together in the swarm, they, they make piles. And if those piles were small bits of plastic, then maybe they could pile them into something that's big enough for just a drone to come by and scoop up. Because the problem mm -hmm. is right now there's plastics. There's just one thing that's bad. There's lots of, lots of things that, yeah. that could be cleaned out of the, out of the environment. And, and you want a, a system that when it's doing that, doesn't add more pollution. So if it's a, made out of frog cells or any kind of biological material, it biodegrades. It just disintegrates and it doesn't add more pollution to the world. So if you have some kind of biocompatible robot like this, like the Xenobots, you might be able to capture something like plastics and, and microplastics are everywhere. They're in the air we breathe, they're in the water, they're found everywhere on earth, the like highest peaks, the lowest depths of the ocean, mm -hmm. the food we eat. We don't yet know whether or not they're good or bad, but I would guess they're not good. No, for they're us. they're definitely bad. Not yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it takes science a while to say something definitively, and right now we mm -hmm. don't really know yet. But but it's like it doesn't seem like a good idea to have plastic fibers like in our lungs. But it's not just that because plastics capture like toxic chemicals and uh, harmful like bacteria and microbes. They just kind of harbor that kind of stuff. It's like a good environment for that. They latch on to it and then they're floating around and we're breathing and drinking them so yeah thinking of solutions to that not just using less plastic which i'm trying to do now although i'm looking around and i have you know there's plastic everywhere so i mean trying to use less yeah that's a great idea and alternatives but there's still already so much in the environment so how how can we go out and collect that and uh and yeah, yeah maybe so small biodegradable ro ro robots will help yeah so in, instead of like collecting it, like using all the micro robots to push it together and then collect it via a drone, is it possible to like add enzymes to the xenobots and then as they come in contact with microplastics, they degrade them and get them out of the environment? And then like the the, the crazy idea is kind of like, is there an aerosol that you could you could breathe of like xenobots made from your your own cells and then they go into your lungs and then it like degrades micro it like captures microplastics so that they don't actually go into your bloodstream or anything like that yeah it's definitely possible to add stomachs and enzymes to to these systems we don't know exactly how that's going to be done but the the xenobots are micro scale so you, so they're not something that could be like in the air but you know there's there's plastics and pollutants that range in scale from micro to nano which is like you can't even see it or it can float around that's when yeah that's when it starts to get tricky you know uh, yeah. Yeah, i don't want to be dealing or making very 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 small systems that would be breathed in by anyone yeah. although you know if they were just cells so cells also are, are too big probably to do that because a cell is like five microns which is like it has to be much smaller to be something like floating in the air i think maybe there's spores and cells that can float in there but the vision that i got from you saying that was something on the on the nano scale which is an interesting space to think about. And there's probably going to be useful technologies that do that. I don't know if building things out of cells is going to be able to get down to that small of a scale. Yeah. So I should just, maybe we should talk a little bit about ethics then since we're talking about breathing in robots. Yeah, so for sure. I, I would just say, yeah. So the, there's a couple of different interesting ethical questions here. One is creating something that would be harmful to humans. And I think that these kinds of xenobots are, would be preferred if they actually could be in the environment because they're biodegradable, like like we mentioned. And bio, it could be biocompatible if they're made out of 
human cells or your, your own cells. So that's, that's something that's really complications. But right now they're super simple. They're all contained within the Tufts lab. And there are so many regulations. This is just skin like blobbing around in a tiny dish, but there's federal state institution regulations. They just will ask a random person on the street whether or not they think people should be doing this. They get input from all different people in the community and they agree that the pros outweigh the cons in this research. It's something you should ask about all science research. Does do the pros outweigh the cons? And if they don't, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. I mean, in this case, the cons are you are borrowing skin cells from frog eggs. You know, the frog eggs, most of them don't survive. The, the mom frog in the, in the wild would just eat most of them. So you're taking these one-day-old frog embryos. There's nothing in there. There's no neurons. They're just undifferentiated blank cells. You're taking the ones that are going to form into skin and you're using them to create some systems that we hope we can advance science and in the future engineering with. So for me, the pros outweigh the cons, but I could see someone who's a very, very strict vegan or something like that might be upset that we're taking the frog eggs. But for me, I think it's, yeah. it's definitely worth it, but it's, it's worth just like asking that question, especially when you start bringing up nano robots that were breathing so just yeah that's my and, and like creating uh, them from your, there. creating from them from your own cells do you think that's more or less controversial well i think that when we talk about ethics we're always talking about how it relates to humans i mean there's animal welfare which we need to take into consideration but normally the whole field of like ethics is about how it's going to affect humans. I don't think that's necessarily right, but once you start using human cells, it's gonna raise a lot more concern from people. Yeah, and whether or not that's, that is what ought to be happening, I can't answer that question. Yeah, that's fair. So, so what are you, so, so you recently moved labs and we were talking about this beforehand, but what are, what are you kind of focused on now? Yeah, so I'm focused on just seeing where the Xenobot research goes. And you know, most of it so far has been engineering. Can you create bio biological robots and what can you get them to do? What can you get them to do without neurons, et cetera? But there's a lot of science, I think, to be done. And I'm hoping that in addition to engineering work of making the best you know, biodegradable robot, that we can also start to answer some science questions like, how do cells cooperate and communicate to build really complex bodies like us or like my dog over there? We, we know a lot, but there's still a lot of unknown questions. So if you look at DNA, uh, sorry, sorry, cut out again. Oh, when you started talking, if you look at DNA. It's something, it's Gates. Let's see, why, why don't I move inside then? Okay. Should I move inside? Maybe, yeah, it, that was the second time it started cutting out. Yeah, why don't, why don't I move this inside? And... All right. So, so yeah, there are 
a lot of engineering questions that are interesting that we've been addressing, but there's also scientific questions that I'm hoping the system can help answer. And one of them is this idea about how, how do cells, simple little cells bring about really complex animals and plants. We know a lot about it, but there's a lot of things we don't know. And one thing that I was describing before my internet went out there was you can look at the DNA of an organism and you can't tell what shape is going to come out of it. You can cheat and you can say, okay, this has like a 99.99% match with this other frog. So it must look like a frog and you'll probably be right most of the time. But if you did that with the xenobots, you'd say, this is hundred percent frog DNA. It's going to look like a tadpole and then a frog. But you'd be wrong because it can be any shape that we can, you know, mold it into. So I think that that the xenobots already are providing like a useful thinking tool for people to realize that it used to seem really obvious that the genes encode the shape, but that can't be the case if you know we're making these other shapes out of them. So it must be there must be other things, and biologists know this. It just makes it much more clear that there's mechanical forces, whether or not it's a human shaping them into something or the cells feeling mechanical forces from their neighbors, that affects how they're growing. There's chemical signals, there's bioelectric signals, there's all kinds of cues in the environment. And it's a very, very complex system and we've only scratched the surface of it. So if we could really understand these things better, and I hope the xenobots can help us do this, if we can understand how things grow, we might be able to, and this is the kind of thing that Mike Levin, my postdoc advisor now is working on, is we might be able to understand then how to regenerate organs or limbs once, mm -hmm. if they're lost in, in an injury or grow, persuade systems to grow in certain ways, there's birth defects and other things, or, or maybe you just want a new liver or something. I mean, there's, yeah. there's obviously, if we could figure out growth, there are systems that live forever because they can, they're so regenerative. There are these worms called planarian uh, flatworms that are in the lab, in Mike Levin's lab that I'm at now. And they are technically immortal. Mm -hmm. You cut them in half, each half will grow into a complete worm head and tail and nervous system and eyes and everything. So they break just naturally by moving around in their environment, but they never I mean, you could, you could kill one, but the cells never die because they just keep regenerating really fast. And there's, there's salamanders and there's other systems that do this. Why and, can't humans? And the really crazy thing about the planarian research is that if you cut off, if you cut the planarian worm in the middle and you take the, like, let's say the head side and you look at the wound and you change the bioelectricity at the wound, then it will regenerate another head. And that, that blew my mind when I first saw that. That was crazy. Yeah, that's a great point. And that illustrates that, that we'll be able to persuade these systems to grow different things, or we already can with worms. So could you do that with a human in future kinds of medicine? Mm -hmm. That would be really powerful. So he, I, I know at one point he put a biodome with progesterone on an amputated frog limb, and then it, he just let it on for 24 hours, and then it regenerated that limb as well. And I think he was working on some mice research. It, how far have we come with like regenerating limbs? So I'm not an expert in this space. I just think that it's obviously something that would be 
a great application of the basic science that I'm doing mm -hmm. from my discussions with the scientists that are working on this. There's things that there's incredible work by my uh, colleague, Doug Blackiston, or Douglas Blackiston, and he's done some of this, of this work. And, and like, for example, they can, they can get frogs to grow eyes on the back of their bodies, yeah. or you can place an eye there and it will just automatically hook up to the nervous, to the spinal cord and they can use it to see. And, and that's really incredible and encouraging, but yeah, right now it's, it's in these systems like frogs and, and not yet something that I think anyone has any idea how to do this in, in, in humans yet, but there is a lot of encouraging evidence that it's possible to change the default of what these, these systems are doing. So like, I think the, these particular frogs, they don't under nor normal circumstances regenerate, but like you said, there's tricks you can do to make them regenerate. And that work was done at the Levin lab as well. And it's really exciting. And so, so right now it's one of the questions could be, could you get an AI to design an organism that makes it easier for scientists to figure out how regeneration works? Hmm. Not, don't make an organism that you know, does your laundry or moves the best way. Those are engineering questions. Can you create a scientific objective, like create a new kind of organism that like advertises its internal mechanisms better than just a frog? So maybe so it's what, transparent or really mm -hmm. thin or I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask like, is it transparent or, or does it light up when something happens or yeah, that was what I was. Yeah, maybe. So maybe it could be something like we don't know how cells are necessarily communicating to each other, how they communicate the damage or know when to stop growing, when to start growing. Can you create shapes in which it, this communication stops across, like create a uh, cylinder and you pinch one end and the cells will propagate information to the other end. You can see that by calcium imaging and, and other kinds of tricks. So you can see this kind of burst of activity propagate through the mm -hmm. cylinder. What happens if you start making the center part of that cylinder smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and creating like a barbell shape? Mm -hmm. Does the signal still pass through that really small channel? I, I don't know. No one knows yeah. because no organism looks like a barbell. So like maybe <laughs> that will help us, things like that. And then you could ask a computer, don't make a barbell, you know, make something that like communicates here, only grows here. These are questions that I don't think are well posed for humans to design things, but for an AI, they don't care. They just try out a million different things in simulation and then build the most promising ones in reality. And so would you build that barbell like out of a frog embryo? Is that what you're looking at? Yeah. So you could, you can take the skin. So when you, there's a frog egg and you, if you just take the top part called the animal cap, it all is going to turn it. They're stem cells, but they're like faded to become the skin. The mm -hmm. frog egg is like a little compass and it's weighted at the bottom and the stuff on that's always at the top because of its weight distribution, they know that that's gonna be the skin. Mm -hmm. So you could take that skin and it's a tiny bit of skin and you can make one xenobot that swims with cilia or they could combine it with, with a heart cell. So it walks with those little motors, whatever. Or you can just start making structures that don't necessarily have to move that are shaped different ways. And maybe you need to take those animal caps from two eggs and then maybe a third one, you make a thin line and you connect them. And this is all work that, that uh, Doug Blackison is doing. He's a very skilled microsurgeon. Mm -hmm. So I'm being trained on this now, how to do it. And it is really difficult 
like to, it's difficult if you don't have experience even looking down a microscope to be able to look down a microscope and like mm -hmm. have things in the field of vision. And then to manipulate a very small thing under that microscope takes a lot of years of practice, but, but I'm hoping that we can adapt bioprinters for this purpose. Right now they can't print at that finer resolution, but I, I don't think it's impossible. So yeah, you would take a bunch of these animal caps, dissociate the skin cells, maybe Maybe that process is done manually by technicians. I feel sorry for them, but they have to do it. <laughs> and they create this, like, it's like the ink, you know, of this 3D printer or the yeah. plastic or whatever it is and a cartridge. And then maybe you can start printing automatically these, these different kinds of shapes like barbells or whatever. And if you could do that process really fast, then maybe you can iterate through some that, that actually like illuminate some of the underlying mechanisms that would be useful for science instead of just making like gross skin barbells. <laughs> so, so do you think like actually manufacturing the biobots is the biggest blocker or is it more the simulation side of things? I think that there are a lot of unknown questions on both ends and we don't know the limits yet on, on in any of, of these processes. So the first thing I'd like to do is automate everything. So the design is, is automated. The computer does it. There's some constraints that are put in. There's building blocks that, that you give it, and there's goals that you want the system to satisfy. But besides that, the system's working on its own and designing these things with, with little to no human intervention. But then it spits out a blueprint, and we build, Doug Blackiston builds that by hand. And that is a very tedious process depending on the accuracy that he makes the system. He can do like a quick and dirty method that's faster, or he could spend a whole week placing every single cell exactly where it needs to go. But it's normally not worth it to do that super precise version of the build method. But if you had uh, 3D bioprinters that could do this, then we could make them do whatever precision we want and just have a lot of them and, and run through this a lot faster. And we could tell them the kinds of shapes that don't transfer from simulation to reality. This is an unknown question in mm -hmm. robotics in the work that we're doing with the Xenobots is how do you get systems that behave a certain way in simulation to always behave that certain way in reality? Because there's, there's infinite depth in the real world. There's so many details and simulation can't possibly have all of those details. Unless you believe that we're living in a simulation ourselves, then, <laughs> then maybe, maybe it can but I, the ones that I'm coding do not have all those details. They stop somewhere. So like yep. you, they're just, yeah, very macroscopic. So yeah, how do you design systems automatically, very rapidly, and then realize them and make sure that they behave in the correct way? I think the way to do that is you automate the whole system, the entire pipeline, and then you iterate through things and you figure out what's hard, what's easy, and what, what kinds of things transfer and what kinds of things don't. Or if you have an entire planet and enough printers, then maybe you don't need simulation. Maybe you just keep printing them and whichever ones survive, uh, <laughs> those are the ones that are the best. Or yeah. if they can replicate themselves, you don't even need the printers. But then it's less about robotics and more about just, you know, seeding a planet with life, which is super cool <laughs> and would be great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the reason I asked that question is because at, at one point you had said that if, if you had more money, you would essentially hire a lot of computer engineers to design a better physics engine. That was like your biggest thing that you needed. Definitely. That's the biggest thing that I want. Yeah. You know, from running the, the computer side of this with my PhD advisor, Josh Bongard at the University of Vermont, I think 
we have probably different strategies on who we would hire, but uh -huh. my strategy would be, I, if I could hire anyone in the world and give them the salary that they want, it would be uh, whoever is the game engineer for like Starcraft or some video game that's really popular with like physics or something that works in Nintendo. It doesn't really matter because they're gonna create the best physics engine. Uh, it doesn't have to look pretty necessarily. Mm -hmm. You know, A lot of the stuff is just a, a body that's moving and then there's like a pretty mesh painted over it. So it looks like Mario or something, but just assist, just to create a really complex physics engine that's really fast that runs on GPUs. These kinds of things will help us explore this design space a lot more efficiently. That's what I would spend my money on. If you gave me infinite resources, like scale of the planet, then yeah, I, maybe we don't need simulation. Maybe you could do this process on the moon or something, and, you know, but that would be really expensive. Print, print these on the moon. Would, would they be useful <laughs> in terraforming, do you think? like? Yeah, so they wouldn't, maybe if we made them out of tardigrade cells, I don't know. They, they would have to be able to survive the vacuum of space and uh, radiation and stuff. But yeah, I just meant like somewhere where if, if it goes awry, it's not going to, mm. it's not going to mm. affect us. So that's the other good thing about simulation is that you can test out really terrible designs and not worry about what would happen if you actually built them as these mm. things start to get more complex. So simulation is, is really nice as a filter. I wouldn't say it's necessary for, I wouldn't say computer simulations are necessary for the xenobots in the future, if they had their own planet to evolve on. But for us, I, I think that simulations will continue to be really useful for, for as long as I'm alive. Well, well, I think we're like kind of coming up on an hour and I think you have some people coming over, but I wanted to kind of talk about like some lessons that you've learned. Nature, uh, I, I was watching a lecture again and nature initially rejected your xenobot paper and then they, mm -hmm. they came around and once they saw it was really cool. <laughs> like, was that a big learning lesson? Like, just like, clearly you weren't doing things that were meant to be published or like you weren't doing it just to be published. You were doing it because you were very interested in it. Could you kind of talk about that? Sure. So yeah, in science, science is a social, it's, it has a social structure and it's this like human based mechanism of transferring knowledge and, and expanding our knowledge. And the way that scientists get rewarded is by publishing in really prestigious places and getting their papers cited and referenced by their colleagues and getting more funding to do, to do research based off of that. And the biggest journals, the most impactful ones are Science, Nature, and then proceeding of, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, or PNAS. And so we submitted in that order and it got into the, the third one. And those are subjective. Other people might disagree on, on the rankings, but most people agree that science and nature are the most impactful ones. For the short term, they get the most citations and press and, and people who aren't in the field that the paper's about will read it. So mm -hmm. I'll read an article about volcanoes if it's in science or nature, but I'm not going to read Volcano Magazine you know, that's too specific for me. I don't have the requisite like expertise to appreciate why this is important. So yeah, of course we started at the top and tried to submit things there. Um, and then because science is this like very uh, human enterprise, it's about a uh, human deciding whether or not this is worthy of, you know, this, this prestigious journal. And how is this new? Is this really important for biology? Is this really important for robotics? Is this, when you do interdisciplinary research that's somewhere in between biology and robotics and computer science, 
it, it's going to land on someone's desk that probably is just really entrenched in the ideas of one of those disciplines. And maybe they think, maybe a biologist thinks, well, this is not you know, how synthetic biology should be done. It should be done by manipulating the DNA, not by mm -hmm. just taking non-GMOs and sticking them together. Like you're not, you're just, that's a toy. You're just making, you know, you know, sculptures or whatever, wind up toys. And a roboticist might say, that's not a robot. It's not built out of the stuff I know. Computer scientists might say, where are the algorithms? Like this isn't yeah. a pure computer science. So when you work at the interface of all these different things, it can be tricky to communicate why this is an important advance or why we believe that it is. So yeah, it's it, the, our first paper got rejected on someone's desk. So an editor gets the paper first and they decide if it's worthy of being sent out to mm -hmm. review. And they said, no, <laughs> we had to wait a while for them to just say no. Uh, and then to the next one, no. And then, and then the third one we got in and yeah, we don't know. You don't know which articles, which scientific stuff is going to be important in hundred years or in 50 years or in 20 years. And I don't know if anyone's done studies on this, but I don't think that's predictable. I, I think like inherently that's impossible to predict. Mm -hmm. So in a hundred years, the most important science might not be the ones that are published in science and nature. It might be published in the volcano magazine. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. So, so yeah, but, but obviously for as, as a scientist that that takes into consideration my career, <laughs> I want to be publishing in the most prestigious uh, place. So, so yeah, we start, we started at the top, but I think it's interesting. So it might say something about the, how different this research is from the stuff that people are used to. The fact that, that it's not appreciated, it, it didn't seem to quite fit in, in, in certain places. So that's a good, that can be a good sign. Yeah, I think like you, yeah, I think you don't want to be doing research that everyone can predict is going to happen in the next year or even right now. And then you have to ask yourself a question as a scientist: Do I want to be doing research that people are going to find important in five years, ten years, twenty years, a hundred years, a thousand years? Mm -hmm. Most people don't want to be doing research that no one's going to appreciate until after they're dead, yeah. um, unless they're just like really just love the science and yeah and are selfless and everything I think, yeah so I think, I think somewhere in between yeah I think that's something like Michael Levin instead of going into like genetic engineering he read the the body electric that book and then went into bioelectricity when a lot of people weren't studying from it uh weren't studying bioelectricity is that and this is like another question is what's kind of something that you've learned from Michael Levin like I just think he's a very interesting person like what have you learned from him is it to do those kind of things that people might not be looking at or or what kind of is it? Definitely. So this thing that I was just saying about like the, how far out do you want your research to be applicable? I, that comes straight from Mike. That's something that a conversation that I had with him on day one that, that we started, uh, or we had the conversation actually as a whole lab in Mike's lab, you know, and he gave his preference for where he wants to be in that spectrum and said, you know, it's up to us to decide wh where we want to sit there. So the longer, the farther out from current research that you are trying to do, the more risky it is. Mm -hmm. So you might, as a younger scientist, want to stay closer to things that people consider safer research. And as you advance your career, and once you're someone like Mike, who has an endowed professorship, you know, then you can start doing <laughs> yeah. whatever you want. Yeah. So I've been lucky to work under Mike Levin and Josh Bongard and who are very established scientists. So I, I have a little bit more flexibility than a lot of younger junior scientists have for the time being, at least. So I'm definitely taking advantage of that.
And, and so then like if people wanted to get into this field either through like research but you know eventually there will be startup applications here where do you think people should start looking and to yeah. support your work as well yeah so i think that this is really exciting from uh, artificial intelligence perspective if you look at the history of artificial intelligence it started out as recognizing recognizing that this is a handwritten seven, mm -hmm. um, recognizing that this is a cat in the picture or your face in the frame of when you go to take a picture on your phone. It started moving into generating new images and new videos like deep fakes or in some very rare cases, new robots, like I described earlier. And this, I think, is the next step in that kind of evolution. So now, we're moving from recognizing to generating, not just generating buildings or robots, but generating new living systems. And I think that that is going to carve out a big space in, in future AI research and robotics. And so if someone wants to get started in this, I would say if they're interested in the AI aspect, then physics simulations are are really important for the time being. And we have some resources on our uh, websites that I can we can link, I guess, in this episode mm -hmm. um, to get people started in learning how to simulate physical things and then really simple evolutionary algorithms that how to evolve them so they become more intelligent over time. If you are interested in the robotic side of it, I would say study developmental biology. You know, this is something I'm trying to learn now, but you don't, you don't have to know every detail. So I treat these biological systems as building blocks and how do you put them together to create something useful for engineering or for science. So you treat them like Legos that we don't know how they behave. And it's very much like a roboticist computer science point of view, but at some point you have to understand some of the biology in the system. So I think that understanding developmental biology, computer simulations, robotics, and, and AI, if any, any one of those fields can contribute a lot to this research. So you don't have to be an expert in any of them or all of them. You just yeah. have to find one of those aspects interesting and that definitely you can contribute to this you know, nascent field. There could be some like, like to get people interested, like some Lego merch <laughs> where you put together a yeah. robot or something like that. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so we started, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, so, so yeah, before the Xenobots, we were making some soft robots that we're trying to pitch as like soft Legos. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So they're like little inflatable cubes that blow up like little balloons and you can build little tiny robots out of them. And the Xenobots are kind of like that, just microscopic and made of cells instead of plastic. Mm. So I do think that there's other areas of soft robotics and robotics that the same kind of ideas are, will apply to the Xenobots. If you ever start manufacturing those, maybe we could promote them together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I would love that. I think so, someone's got to do soft Legos eventually. Like they don't hurt if you step on them, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know if you, <laughs> the bio, the bi yeah, exactly. The biological Legos, I don't know if you want that, you know, they're just going to disintegrate in like a week, but, <laughs> but maybe, maybe it's fun. Could still get some kid into the field or something like that. And, and then yeah. you make some money and maybe uh, sustain your, uh, like help fund some research. I don't know if you'd actually make that much, but could be interesting. I've been yeah. thinking about like interesting merch ideas, like, like genetic, like engineering a plant to glow in the dark or something like that. Like, I'm not sure if you can make a kit. Yeah. Like well, I want to make like a that. Xenobot kit, but I think 
for like a classroom. I don't know if you're allowed. I don't know what the regulations are for that kind of thing. But like you said, you can buy frog embryos online. I don't, if a high school like biology class could do this, that'd be really great. Uh, you're not going to get rich off of something like that. But I think like, that's how you really advance the sciences. You get the kids interested in it and then they grow up knowing how to do synthetic biology and make xenobots. And by the time they're our age, they're like whizzes at it and really advancing the field. So that's yeah. something I'm interested in. I, I do think there are going to be applications that, that are going to make people money and, hopefully also advance uh, the science along the way. I don't know what those are yet, um, mm -hmm. but you could imagine that designing, designing biological, biodegradable, biocompatible, they self-heal because they're made of cells that just naturally heal. If you can get these things to do something useful, some useful work, and mm -hmm. then they're going to be very desirable and probably make someone money. And it, it might have to wait until they are made out of something other than frog cells, like human yeah. cells that can and do maybe something. Oh, of course you need the bones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the neurons and yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it's going to be, but, but it I do start think... selling like mini pet dogs. <laughs> like, that's yeah. not, like people can bond to that or something. <laughs> um, Definitely. It's not an actual yeah. useful work, but they can bond to it and have a little pet. <laughs> um, yeah. I wonder if, if, yeah, we can just hook up a camera to the, little xenobots and have people get ownership of them you know if, mm. if you pay a hundred dollars that's your xenobot you can name it like, are you gonna start we'll make NFTing? it do tricks <laughs> you're yeah, gonna start yeah. nfting your xenobots <laughs> yeah <laughs> like you yeah. own this so, petri dish of xenobots <laughs> i would absolutely do that it's very yeah so i think the money will start to come from institutions that fund science mm. it's starting to come now a little bit trickle in I'm hoping actually that this kind of very basic scientific work that's obviously like really enchanted the public and people are starting to see maybe there's applications, but it started with ideas that were very basic science. With, and I'm hoping that the success, or if you can call it success of the Xenobot so far, will convince Congress people that they should be funding, you know, very basic science that we don't know yeah. where it's going to go. But of course, they're not, they're probably not. That, that's, I, I think that's help. more difficult than like private backers. But yeah, yeah that's, maybe. Yeah. I, I think yeah, so, private backers that can see a uh, route to route to money is helpful. Yeah, if any are there and want want to fund my research, yeah, we'll <laughs> name Xenobots after you. We can we can put little logos on their back, <laughs> whatever you want. We have no shame, no shame as long as you, as long as you let us do the science. Yeah, advertising on the Xenobots, uh, of course, yeah. like etched in on the. <laughs> Yeah, or we, we can spell out them with Xenobots, but mm. I don't know if that will help or hurt your brand if it's spelled <laughs> out in skin in skin cells. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like Coca-Cola <laughs> could do a, a reducing microplastics campaign. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 So the problem is that, you know, that's definitely speculation. They yeah, can't, yeah. They yeah. can't really do that. So yet. But yeah, maybe. Maybe it could be something where they're saying we're investing in this basic science that might one day help the fact that yeah. we are adding so much plastic. Yeah. But I think they probably want to avoid even just mentioning that that's a problem. That you know? they have microplastics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sure. exactly. Yeah. 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 I'm just like, I, I, I focus, I, I think with my content, I focus more on startups than like basic yeah. research, even though basic research is important for that. So that's kind of why I start thinking about that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I guess if you are an investor and you realize that something's 10 years away before 
everyone else, then that's how you make a lot of money. So the like the high risk, high reward science, I think also fits in with high risk, high reward investing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not an investor, so I don't know how much risk people are willing to take on like that. I guess yeah. if you're super rich, you can you can invest a little bit in that as well. Yeah. So right now, who knows? They might never actually have a useful engineering application, but I think the ideas will. This idea of using AI to design uh, synthetic biology, to design things like in medicine or in environmental cleanup, that idea I think is going to stick around, even if it's not building robots out of cells. Even if it's not exactly the Xenobot uh, form, I, I definitely exactly. think building soft robots out of cell, out of cells, like even though you said it wouldn't be out of cells, like I think that's very impactful and very cool. Yeah. So even before the computer came into this, so the story behind the Xenobots was these are computer designed organisms. That was what was so powerful. But even before that, the fact that Doug Blackison figured out how to make a soft robot out of cells, even if he couldn't get it to do what he wanted it to do because the AI wasn't there to program it yet, Mm -hmm. that was a big advance in and of itself. So yeah, I think that that, that those two separate threads of creating completely biological technologies and using AI to design biological things I think those are two very powerful ideas that, that I hope will help someone create something useful in well, the world eventually. <laughs> if anybody wants to fund this or if anybody's starting a startup in this, definitely reach out to either one of us. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to collaborate on that, Jack. Yeah. Um, Xenobots Inc. Or we can make action figures maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's where the money is. <laughs> Were there any other questions that uh, you think I should have asked you that you wanted to talk about or, or did we kind of cover all of it? I think we covered it and I'd be happy to have another chat with you in the future. There's tons more Xenobot stuff that's in the pipeline or that we're just trying to dream up right now. But I I don't think this is just a one or two paper and done kind of thing. I think, I think this is a whole new field. Of course, I hope that because, you know, it's now my field, but I really do believe there's a lot of important work to be done in this space. And, and yeah, well, I'll be back to chat about it. Yeah, I mean, similar to like Joe Rogan has recurring guests and then you kind of like mm-hmm. learn their narrative as they go over time. I want to do this with like researchers and then eventually, you know, also I make just shorter videos, maybe like a vlog, like going to the lab or something. I, I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, so, yeah, where are you based stay again, updated. Jack? Right now, so I was in Texas. Right now I'm in Utah, just visiting okay. the mountains. And nice. I think I'll go back to Texas, but I'm like happy to travel to wherever you are and see some yeah. stuff in person. I think that would be awesome. Totally. If you're in the Boston area, let me know and I'll see what I can do. With the COVID restrictions, it's a little bit crazy, but I think I think we can get you in there for some yeah. videos of the bots in, in real life. It's way different when you see them in the real world. Like, oh, I bet. And through the, on the computer and in the videos that are online, that's Doug holding up a cell phone to one of the two binocular lenses of a microscope yeah. as he then also is sculpting the things without depth perception <laughs> oh my gosh. so okay doug is amazing at doing it that i still incredible. want to replace him with a yeah. computer with a with 3d <laughs> printer but he's incredible but but the point is that if you see them in the real world with the microscope they are 3d they have depth they're much more intricate it's just it's really awesome to see them uh, in reality and, and yeah maybe we can get some some better footage of that and yeah, yeah for you to experience that is is really cool so if you're in the area let yeah, me know for sure and if you have any upcoming research that you're going to publish and 
I'll, I'll definitely like fly out for events or, or whatever. Uh, okay. Whenever you're doing sure thing. Storm. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that basically covers it. I'm super excited for the rest of your research and uh, I appreciate your, your time. Yeah. So, so one thing you can do for us is get Xenobots trending on TikTok. Maybe <laughs> we should make them dancing or something that could be arranged. Yeah. <laughs> my, I think my previous videos have gotten like 800,000 views or something like, like this research definitely captures the public for sure. People love this stuff. Yeah. And, and what I'd like is that it captures the imaginations of like younger people that aren't going to read the scientific journals or newspapers or whatever. That's most of where mm -hmm. the press is. So the people that are reading that, they've already made up their minds of what they're working on. I mean, maybe they'll fund the mm -hmm. research, but I'd much rather have younger people that are more open to new ideas be aware of this research because they're the yeah. ones that are actually going to advance. Exactly. It. And like part of my content, like meta level goals is that using TikTok, like I find like a high school young engineering audience. And then like over time, they start doing cool research and then uh, like this and then eventually like in five years or something they they start a startup around this and then they they reach out to that's me that's awesome because they're like oh nasdaq likes this he'll invest in this and so, so awesome. yeah i kind of think about like creating a, a pipeline of people interested in these these kind of ideas that's awesome all right find us some investors jack <laughs> okay <laughs> and some awesome. young minds to shape all right thanks jack this is a great yeah great uh, conversation follow everybody should follow you on twitter or where where can they best stay updated on you yeah, so so I'm older, so I use Twitter, not TikTok, but maybe I'll have to get on TikTok. Twitter's um, Twitter's so much better. I, I love Twitter. Twitter's good for, for the, the science and finding papers and stuff. TikTok's too addicting. I was on it for a little bit and I like just got sucked into the phone. Yeah. So Twitter Twitter's a little bit better for if you have addiction issues. So yeah, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle I've had for a while and I just can't change now. It's Krieg America. So my last name's Kriegman. <laughs> K-R-I-E-G. And then America taking over the yeah, nation. Cre <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, there's a Seinfeld episode, Kramerica Industries, like Kramer made. Yeah, yeah. Fake, I actually, or maybe it's real. I just yeah. watched that episode. I've been, <laughs> I've been watching some Seinfeld. <laughs> yeah, Kramerica Industries. So yeah, it's Kriegmerica Industries. So yeah, oh, it's man. obscure, but now now I have to keep it. I, I've been tagging too many things. I can't change it. Now. <laughs> no, I like that, and it's a it's a good old Seinfeld reference. I mean, that, exactly. That, that's time. Gotta have that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. I'll, I'll stay updated and I, I look forward to talking to you soon. All right. Thanks, Jack. Awesome. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. As always, go follow us on Twitter. Sam is at Kriegmerica, K-R-I-E-G-M-E-R-I-C-A. And I am at NASDAQ underscore underscore. If you enjoyed this, definitely tweet your thoughts at us or share the episode. And the next episode will be on growing algae and terraforming. I am super excited to share it with you guys and I'll see you there. Peace.